Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the content in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review. Our guest today on Catholic Baltimore is Dr. Francesco Cesareo, President of Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's also the Chairman of the National Review Board, a group of laypeople from many different areas of expertise who advise the U.S. bishops on clergy sexual abuse. Dr. Cesareo presented a report to the fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which elicited a standing ovation. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Are you and other members of the National Review Board frustrated as frustrated as the bishops sound by the Vatican's request for the bishops not to vote on the proposals they had before them regarding the accountability of bishops? Yes. Um, I think that we were just as surprised as the bishops were when that announcement was made on Monday. There was a real uh, confusion as to why such a directive or intervention had occurred, particularly at such a late hour when this had been in the planning stages and talked about for several months ever since the current crisis erupted um, this summer. So, the, yes, the members of the National Review Board are as frustrated as the bishops are in terms of their inability to take decisive action at this time. We've been listening to the bishops discuss this over the past couple of days since your, uh, you gave your report, and many of them are expressing frustration, anger, a willingness, and a need to do something urgently right now. Is that something that the Review Board also perceives as part of their recommendations? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think yesterday uh, in the uh, dialogue between myself and uh, the bishops, one of the bishops, Bishop uh, McKnight, uh, stood up and, and asked and asked me a question, and the question was, if there's just one thing that you would tell us as bishops, what would that be in terms of what needs to be done? And he prefaced that by saying how dismayed and disheartened he was by the uh, Vatican's directive. And my response was, you need to act now and you need to act decisively and you cannot allow this to stagnate the process and the momentum of addressing this issue. Uh, You've got to find a way to do something so that when you leave these meetings, the faithful have got to get a sense that the bishops are ready to act. In your presentation to the bishops, you said that their response to the scandals has been incomplete and showed Mm -hmm. a lack of transparency. What are the review board's recommendations to address those two concerns? The first is to deal with the issue of transparency. Uh, and it will be very important for the bishops to begin a uh, review of their personnel files, their clergy files, their seminary files, um, so that any cases from the past that have not been revealed are revealed, but more importantly, in looking at those cases, what were the actions taken by the bishops at that time? Did the bishops respond appropriately, effectively, or did they omit doing anything in those areas? So transparency is number one. 
And secondly, in terms of accountability, there has to be some consequences for bishops who either themselves abused or through their inaction or omissions uh, allowed and enabled abuse to uh, continue going forward and what kind of consequences can be put in place, what kind of mechanisms can be put in place that will make sure the bishops are held as accountable as the priests have been since the charter in 2002. You mentioned opening up files or reviewing files at least. The Archdiocese of Baltimore in 2002 was one of the first in the country to mm-hmm. publish a list of priests credibly accused of abuse, and that list has been updated in the years since. Mm-hmm. The Archdiocese is also cooperating with an investigation by the Maryland Office of the Attorney General. Does the review board, do you believe that every diocese in the country should publish such a, such a list and work with civil authorities in, the, in this kind of way? Yes, that was one of the recommendations I made yesterday, that all bishops needed to go through their files and to invite their state's uh, local authorities or attorney generals to do these review files, uh, because I think it's just going to be a matter of time that uh, all of the state's attorney generals are going to come in and make that, uh, not simply a request, but demand. And so it's much better for the bishops to be proactive in this area and to do this on their own. You've been on the review board for a number of years. The review board Mm -hmm. itself was created after the Charter for Protection of Children and Young People was approved in 2002. Has there been a change in, first of all, the number of of incidents, but also in the way the church handles things since 2002, or are we still in the same place we were before that? Oh, no, we are not in the same place that we were before 2002, and the church has... um, uh, done a great deal in this area since 2002, and I think that's important for people to realize. And the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People has put into place um, important policies and, and protocols and mechanisms whereby we have seen, by evidence, the number of allegations by current minors significantly decline prior to the, the Charter being put in place. You know, you've got every diocese will immediately report an allegation to local authorities. They all have diocesan and review boards. They all have safe environment training. They all have victim assistance coordinators. So much has been put in place. Uh, what has been incomplete in this is holding the bishops accountable because they are not in the charter and so they're not subject to the same standards that the clergy have been subject to and there's no mechanism to hold them accountable, which is not the case with the clergy. So a lot has been done, but more needs to be done, and that's why we are at the moment that we find ourselves in as church. How can bishops regain the trust of the faithful? The only way that that's going to happen is if they are honest with themselves and recognize that they must be transparent and they must be held accountable, and they need to put into place clear, definitive, concrete action steps that signal that to the faithful. Lacking that is going to be very, very difficult for them to regain the trust and the credibility that they once had. It's not words. It's it's not prayer. It's action and decisive action, and, and that's going to be critical. And for them to um, come out of this meeting without something that is going to be action-oriented is only going to further the fracturing that's taking place uh, between the faithful and the, the leadership of the church, 
and continue to erode whatever is left, which is very little, of their credibility among among the faithful. So they've got to come out of these, these, this meeting with something that signals a cultural change, and I think that's important. There has to be a change in the culture of the Episcopacy. They can no longer see themselves as being beyond and above the standards that we are applying to everyone else in the Church. They have to be part of that as well. It's easy for Catholics in the pew, I think, to despair at this point in some ways, to say, well, nothing's going to get better. Some of them may not realize the, the differences that have happened in in training mm-hmm. and accountability for clergy and other employees since 2002. In all that despair, do we have a reason for hope? Absolutely. We have a reason for hope, and the reason that we uh, can put our faith in hope is that we recognize that this is not the first time in the history of the Church that it has faced a, a moment of darkness, uh, that it has faced challenges. We always have the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will guide the Church, and we will get through this, but it will take the efforts of the leadership to um, show and to demonstrate to the faithful that they understand that they are partly, if not fully, responsible for the situation that we find ourselves in. But we always have to have hope because, you know, as it says in the Gospel, the Holy Spirit will always be there and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that means that at this point a lot is riding on Pope Francis's February meeting with presidents of bishops' conferences from around the world, right? Well, you would conclude that, and and I think that's a legitimate conclusion, but knowing how those meetings go and knowing that you're bringing representatives from so many different cultural contexts to bear on this issue in that meeting, I find it difficult to imagine that anything concrete is going to come out of those meetings because these are issues that are very much local issues, and they need to be addressed from a local perspective. Uh, and, you know, the Church has been very reticent up to this point of establishing universal norms and standards to deal with this issue. I think that that becomes a great challenge when you do have the so many different cultural contexts in which this issue emerges that thinking that something concrete will come of that is, is I'm just skeptical. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Francesco Cesareo, chairman of the U.S. Bishops National Review Board about clergy sexual misconduct and bishop accountability and his report to the U.S. Bishops meeting November 13th. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Cesareo. Thank you, Chris. This is Christopher Gunty of the Catholic Review, and you've been listening to Catholic Baltimore. In place of the regular news segment this week, we're going to spend a few moments talking about a milestone for the Catholic Baltimore radio show. This week marks our 200th broadcast. I'm Christopher Gunty. And I'm George Matasek. In addition to Father Brian Nolan, we're your regular hosts for this show. We also have some occasional guest hosts. The, other, the original host of this show was Sean Kane, Director of Communications for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. But Sean has ceded the microphone to us for the past couple of years, and we're grateful for the opportunity. I actually got my start as a DJ for my high school radio station, so this kind of brings me full circle. Yeah, it's been a great opportunity. We both have long careers in print journalism, so it's nice to be on the digital side. What are some of the things that people have enjoyed listening to most? 
Well, all our programs are archived on SoundCloud, and we had a chance to go back and look at the, the most listened to programs. And the number one show was a program on Sister Rose Picade, who talked about film, and you had a chance to talk with her. She's a great interview, just really full of life and energy. And she's been on game shows, which is a lot of fun. So. The other two most listened to programs were one on the First Fruit, Fruits Farm and the Oblate Sisters of Providence. And then also we did an interview with Father Brian Nolan about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. We've also covered uh, events around the Archdiocese, music and worship, arguing with atheists, marriage and family life, you name it, we've covered it, I think. A lot of different topics. And what, what shows do we have coming up? Well, I've got a, an interview with a book author who wrote a novel from the point of view of Jesus. So that you'll hear about that next week. And I'm, I have an interview with Father Stephen Roth, who's the vocations director for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Great. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app. And you can find us in the My Parish app. Just click the Archbalt radio button. And you can always go to archbalt.org and just scroll about halfway down the page. And the most recent program is always there, along with links to the archived programs. Great. Thanks for listening to Catholic Baltimore. Thanks for listening. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have The Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today in print and online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Welcome to Catholic Baltimore. Bishop Shelton J. Fobb is Bishop of Homa Thibodeau, Louisiana. A Louisiana native, he was ordained a priest in 1989. He was ordained Auxiliary Bishop of Orleans in 2007 and he was appointed the fourth bishop of Homa Thibodeau in 2013. He is a member of the U.S. Bishops Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church. He also chairs the Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism, which developed a pastoral statement of the bishops, Open Wide Our Hearts, The Enduring Call to Love, a pastoral letter against racism, which the U.S. bishops were expected to approve tomorrow, November 14th. We spoke to Bishop Bob at the U.S. Bishops meeting in November. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. So the last time the bishops released a, a national statement on this topic was 1979. What has changed and what hasn't changed in those years? Well, the last time the bishops as a full conference spoke about racism was that document that individual bishops have issued documents with regard to racism in, in their dioceses. Mm-hmm. Um, Archbishop Gloria issued exactly. one last Archbishop year. Archbishop Hughes mm-hmm. issued one right after Hurricane Katrina in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Right. Uh, what has changed is, um, you know, we have made progress in many areas. We have regressed in some areas, but racism has the ability to kind of adapt with the times. And unfortunately. Unfortunately, exactly. And, you know, I think in the past, uh, the bishops 
really addressed personal racism, you know, racist, which is certainly uh, an evil. Um, and for the most part in the past, racism was looked upon as a black-white issue. Mm -hmm. Not totally, but that was its, its real uh, right. manifestation. Since that time, you know, racism has uh, morphed into more. There is now not only personal individual racism, which is sinful, but there's structural racism, there's institutional racism, which is that kind of racism that really becomes a part of our structures and our institutions, and it makes it very difficult for for people to get ahead. Mm -hmm. and in I think this week that, I saw a report you know, about the systemic nature systemic of that. Systemic racism. That it, there's an eviction racism. Right. It's not just exactly. about poverty, but it's about people of similar income levels. Uh, yes. Blacks are more likely to be evicted than whites. Exactly. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes, exactly, yes. That, that would be systemic racism, that racism that is not necessarily a personal, but it is an evil, you know, that is part of part of society. So the, the fact that racism now... Uh, has a much broader face, but also racism is no longer just the black-white issue. You know, now with many, many uh, ethnicities and races that are part of the United States and even part of the church in the United States, we see it even raising its ugly head with regard to, to other cultural families. Mm -hmm. So certainly the, the, the antagonism against the, the yes. those coming up to the exactly. border would yes. be a, right. not black you know mm -hmm. would Precisely. be a racism against his central american yes exactly you know in the ongoing uh, struggle with racism that faces the native american community you know the original community african americans uh, hispanics um, all of those kind of new uh, well not the native americans but those cultural groups that are now part of the united states where uh, racism is still that they carry. So, mm -hmm. uh, and the pastoral letter kind of lays that out, that, that the faces of racism has changed. We've made progress in some areas, but we've got, uh, we've also regressed in some areas. Mm -hmm. What are just a couple of the highlights of the pastoral statement? The highlights of the pastoral statement is that the bishops now uh, recognize racism as a life issue. So certainly not to be equated with abortion. Abortion is chief amongst the life issues, but uh, racism is a life issue because it really attacks the human dignity of the person. Mm -hmm. It is an invitation on the part of each and every person to really do some reflecting. How is it that I might not be respecting someone's human dignity? And if I am not respecting that, why am I not respecting that? What is the cause of my not respecting that? Mm -hmm. So that would be another thing. The other thing is that uh, we as uh, bishops commit ourselves to preaching about racism. There are more practical uh, applications. You know, in the past, while the statement was made, at the end of this statement, there are things that the bishops are going to attempt to do. And the pastoral letter on racism is going to be implemented by the ad hoc committee on racism. So mm -hmm. the bishops have really taken very seriously this problem of racism because pastoral letters from the entire body of bishops are not uh, not that uh, often. So this is mm -hmm. unusual. So the bishops are issuing this, this pastoral letter. And then they have also established the ad hoc committee on racism in light of, you know, the language that is emerging and uh, some of the violence that has been happening. And the bishops have tasked the ad hoc committee on racism with implementing the pastoral letter. How do you hope that dioceses and parishes implement this and really make it a living document. You mentioned this morning that you have lesson plans for K through 12 right, exactly. and things like that. But what are the, some of the kinds of things that you have available? I would hope that people would become more comfortable 
talking about racism. Right now, it's a topic that shuts us down or people shut down or they're afraid to talk about it. I hope that it gives people, you know, it opens doors for, uh, for dialogue. I hope that it is a document that people will read and, and reflect upon. My hope is that the document, we both know the document is not going to, on its own, end racism. No. But it is the voice of the bishops being lifted up in that conversation and in that discussion. And it is bringing the resources and the wisdom of the church to bear on this topic. And I think that that's very important as well. I think our churches have a unique ability to be places where if we're going to have a discussion on race, I think people will trust that it's going to be constructive, you know, and that there's really going to be dialogue. And I think personally that's an important thing that the church, the Catholic Church in the United States brings to this discussion. We can allow places for people to come to discuss racism guided by the pastoral letter and it's my hope that they would know that this is going to be a constructive dialogue and it's a place that that they can trust that they will be heard, and they'll be able to share their own stories. Those are some of my hopes with mm-hmm. regard to the pastoral letter. In your presentation this morning, which of course was not the first presentation right, of this, right, this has right. been in the works for yes. years now, yeah. but in your presentation this morning, you talked about the, the rise of racist expression, mm-hmm. especially in our country, but certainly yeah. in places yes. around the world. Correct. Why do you think that's happening now? What's, what, what's the catalyst there? Is there anything, any one thing? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, more and more in our lives today, we are dealing with fear. Mm-hmm. And when people are afraid or people don't understand, you know, they tend to, to retrench and, and to go and uh, not seek to understand, just to look out for me, myself, and I, and my family. So I think the fact that in so many, in so many ways we are afraid for so many reasons. You know, the bishops began dealing with this four years ago. Mm-hmm. Four years ago, it was raised up that we needed to do a pastoral letter uh, on racism. But I think the fact that our country now and our church is more diverse, and maybe we don't have an appreciation for the giftedness of that diversity. We look upon people who are racially or ethnically different from us as the other mm-hmm. or them, and right. that's in the document as well. And maybe it's that we are uh, not so open to the gifts that that other races and cultures bring to our country and and to the church. So those would be some of the reasons, I think, uh, that this whole problem is is on the rise again. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing some of that, that language. The other thing is, it goes without saying, that social media gives people an outlet where you can say anything and, 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 and people certainly read it and there's no no way to have a discussion about that. Right. It's just out there. Sometimes so no filter for that. No filter, exactly. So I think social media has a big role to play uh, in this as well. It has emboldened people, I think, in this regard again. Mm-hmm. Is there a need for both communities and individuals to respond to this? Yes. And that's, the pastoral letter says that as well. You know, it invites it invites every person who has been harmed by racism to reflect and think about the document. It invites those people who are heavily involved right now in, in combating and healing racism to think about it. It invites those who uh, maybe perpetuate racist acts or those who would say, you know, I'm not racist. I would admit to being prejudiced but not racist. It invites all those people and all people of goodwill mm-hmm. to sit with this document, to read it, and to say, how is it that I can go forward to encounter, you know, that wonderful word that Pope Francis uses, 
to encounter the other and learn from them and benefit from them? How is it that that encounter can lead me to a deeper appreciation of them and then a deeper appreciation of myself? Because, you know, racism harms everybody. Racism Mm -hmm. harms naturally those who suffer its effects, but racism also harms those who perpetuate it. It harms the human community, and so therefore it it really does harm all of us. That's great. Thank you very much for for bringing that to our attention. We've been talking today with Bishop Shelton Bob, who is Bishop of Homa Thibodeau, Louisiana, and Chairman of the U.S. Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism. We've been talking about the pastoral statement that the bishops approved this week called Open Wide Our Hearts, the Enduring Call to Love, a Pastoral Letter Against Racism. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Child abuse is not only a crime, it's also a sin. The Archdiocese of Baltimore has long made the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through rigorous training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org. Life can be hard, and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator, who would be happy to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.